It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. If you're an alumni of one of our Ellerslie discipleship programs, I want to encourage you to consider joining the Ellerslie Alumni Network. It is our place online for weekly encouragement, book discussions, ongoing discipleship and exhortation, and other ways to stay connected and encourage one another in gospel-centered living. So if you've graduated from one of our discipleship programs, consider joining the community of other Ellerslie alumni in the Ellerslie Alumni Network. Learn more at ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, in today's Daily Thunder episode, I want to give you a peek into one of the burdens that God has been pressing in my personal life over the past few months. Uh, I've been pondering, I'm not, I'm not committing to this, I'm, I've been pondering over the last uh, couple of weeks. We, uh, obviously on Tuesdays, I've been working through Ephesians slowly, uh, through a series in Ephesians, <laughs> and we'll eventually get done, maybe before the Lord returns. <clears throat> but, uh, we just finished the little series on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament that we were walking through for the Ellerslie Online program that we're doing this summer. And so I've been pondering what to do, what little series to be walking through on our Thursdays. And one of the things I've been considering is walking through a little series on repentance, idolatry, and altars. I'm not committing to it. But uh, it's one of those things that God's just been pressing in my life. I, I think I mentioned this one of the, in one of the sessions earlier this week, that <clears throat> when you look at all the major revivals in history, <clears throat> there seems to be three things that you can look at and say, okay, there are three things associated with every single revival. So every genuine revival, if you study those in history, this seems like there's always people praying, that there's never been a revival where people were not praying. Now, usually the people praying were not public. In other words, they, they didn't get any of the prestige. They didn't get any of the highlights. Rarely do we ever know their names. But when you trace it back, there's always somebody praying. And I love the hidden stories that come out later of, you know, this, this person who was praying for year after year after year after year after year that God would move. Suddenly God moves and does this incredible thing. Lives are changed, but then that person never get, is never noticed, which is awesome, by the way, <laughs> because that needs to be our position. But there's always prayer. Interestingly, in every revival, there, as I mentioned before, there's a lifting up of the Word of God, that people began to take this book seriously. Uh, you know, when you read some of Peter's and Paul's letters, there's this, there's, there's this tone that in the last days, this becomes wishy-washy, this becomes diluted, this becomes, you know, people just start preaching whatever they want to preach, and it becomes, you know, five keys to a good life and how to have your best life now kind of stuff. And, it, and it's, it's just this wishy-washy, you're tickling the ears of the people who are listening. But in revival, it's interesting that there is a return to say, God, this is your word. We're going to come under your word, and we're going to say yes. So this is right. We are wrong. Yes. So, Lord, whatever you need to change in my life to make this book happen in my life, yes. Because this is right. That I'm not going to lord over my opinion over this book. This book is correct. And that there's a lifting up of the authority of the Word of God and the preaching, the proclamation of the truth. That seems to be in every single revival. And then the other key piece of revival is interesting. It's repentance. 
that there is not a revival where there is not repentance. In fact, most revivals, you can point to the fact that, that yes, someone was praying usually for years in advance, the word of God is lifted up, but really it's the repentance that kind of is the spark that light, lights the whole revival on, gets the whole thing going. In other words, it's usually someone saying, you know what, I, I have a confession and, and I, just, I just need to make this right. And somehow in their confession, God begins to stir and, and bring about conviction on other people, which causes them to confess. And then you, that's you know, how you spend all night long just in praise and worship and confession and brokenness and, and, and the Spirit of God just begins to move because of repentance. And, and just that theme has been, I guess, stirring in my life over the last couple of months. And it's interesting, it wasn't until recently I went, oh, that's, that's intriguing. Uh, over the last six months, God's been really pressing me in prayer. Which is funny because you're like, well, do you not pray? Well, yes, I pray. But my guess is we could look at all of our lives and say, but could you pray more? Could you pray with greater intensity? Could you take prayer more seriously? And if, and if you're saying, no, I'm good, come talk to me. Uh, <laughs> I want to know your secret. <clears throat> I mean, one of my favorite prayers is Leonard Ravenhill. And Leonard Ravenhill, I mean, he was, by, by the end of his deathbed, he was just like, there's more. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not praying enough. And here's a man who would pray hours and hours and hours and hours. I mean, if you've never read Praying John Hyde, the book, you've got to read Praying John Hyde. I mean, this man just had this intimacy with God through prayer and just a heart for revival. And I mean, if you haven't read the Ian Bounds stuff, read Ian Bounds. I mean, there, here are these men who just travailed in prayer which is just amazing. But God has just been pressing me, saying, Nathan, you got to start taking this seriously. Uh, this whole idea of repentance, it's just like over the last couple of months has been like, it's been so pressed in my life. Maybe because of COVID. I don't know. But I just begin to recognize the importance of repentance. Well, all that being said, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's interesting in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is one long sermon. You thought we preached long here. <laughs> Deuteronomy is, <clears throat> is Moses. They're about to enter in, into the promised land. They've wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is about to die right after the book of Deuteronomy, actually at the very end of Deuteronomy. And Moses is standing up <clears throat> and in basically three sections begins to preach to the Israelites. And he's reminding them, okay, rem remember what God has done. Remember what he brought you out of. Remember the wilderness season. Hey, remember the fact that, yes, you're going into a land full of giants and, you know, mon monstrous walls and, and people stronger and mightier than you are. Yes, but remember that God is going before you as a burning fire. So you've got to enter in by faith. You've got to enter in by trust. And so in the middle of that whole reminder, <clears throat> Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses goes through the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6, he gives what we call the Shema. And the word Shema in Hebrew means to listen or to hear. And it comes from the very first word in verse 4, which is hear or listen. So, listen. <laughs> Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, he's summarizing something for us. Verse 5, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. 
These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And basically what Moses is saying is, hey, every time you, you begin to see these, this, this declaration, every time you see the reminder, hey, every time, what, what is that going to bring to mind? It's going to bring to mind the reality of what God is wanting you to do, how he's wanting you to live. Well, what is that? Love the Lord your God with everything. I mean, be obsessive. Don't hold anything back. Be aggressive in this. I mean, hey, don't, hey, don't slow down. Now, if you would, uh, flip over to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> uh, Matthew chapter 22 is fascinating. Again, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been trying to trap Jesus. And of course, you know, they, they keep bringing these situations and questions and, 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 and issues up to Jesus so that they could potentially trap him so that they can get rid of him. And <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 34... It says that the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees. And of course, they're excited because they didn't like the Sadducees anyway. So one of the Pharisees say, well, hey, <laughs> the Sadducees, you know, got silenced by Jesus. Let, let me deal with them. So one of them, verse 35, who was a lawyer, tested Jesus by asking him, teacher, oh, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, out of all the law, Jesus, what would you say is the most important thing? Or how would you summarize the entirety of the law? And do you know what Jesus says? We, we, we talked about this earlier, but he goes back into the Old Testament, reaches into Deuteronomy 6, grabs the Shema and says, here it is. Here's the big deal that I want for your life. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, hey, if you want to fulfill all the law and the prophets, it's all summarized by one word, love. And, of course, if you've been around the church at all, you know the word agape. That word agape or agape in the Greek, we typically define it as the God love. Right? And that's not how you understood it. It's this idea of it's unconditional, it's unmerited, it's aggressive kind of a love. Now, that is very true. And almost every instance that that word is used, it's referring to that God kind of love. However, if that's how you define it, you do have a problem with certain passages. For example, turn over to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. <clears throat> and in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus makes this declaration. He says, this is the verdict. John 3, 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's speaking of himself. Light has come into the world. And men agape darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So just as a help for you, Please don't just define agape as God love because suddenly you have a serious theological problem <laughs> with that verse. But when you get to the heart of agape, the reason we describe it as the God love, and again, most of the time it's used, it is referring to the fact 
of the love of God. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, God is agape. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion, right? It's a person. And so again, don't, don't get distracted. Does that make sense? Uh, all that to say, the reason we, we use this idea of agape with God is because it is unconditional. It is unrelenting. It is aggressive. It is, it is unmerited. Do you realize that God's agape love for you sent him to a cross? That you could not earn it. You could not get rid of it. Hey, you could spit upon his face. Hey, you, you could beat his back. You could put a crown of thorns upon his head. He is still going to love you. Why? Because the love that he has for you is not based upon what you do. It's based upon who he is. That's phenomenal. Do you know how we loved sin? That same way. It was aggressive. It was unconditional. It was unrelenting. Hey, we didn't care what sin did to us. We were going to love it regardless. Hey, sin causes destruction in our life. That's okay. I'll take the destruction because I want the sin. And we were after the sin, not because of the sin, but because of us. Are you seeing, have you seen the concept? And interestingly, Jesus says, do you know how men loved darkness? Or do you, do you know how men lived? Men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So here's this spotlight shining in the middle of the darkness and everyone's going, no, no, no. Why? Because it's offensive. And if you've ever gone camping, you know, one of the best things to do when you're camping is, you know, it gets dark, everyone's eyes, you know, expand, get as much light as possible. And you walk up behind someone in the middle of the night, no lights, few stars, you take a flashlight, Right? If you've never done that, try it. <laughs> Just make sure you do it with somebody you love because <laughs> they might punch you. But it's offensive. They scream. They, they start flay, flay, whatever that word is. They start hitting you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Why? Because, hey, this is, and Jesus says that's what's happened, that I have come into the world and the light is so bright and because men have so loved their darkness, they've rejected this. It's interesting when we're talking about this idea of repentance. Isn't it interesting that the same love that we love our darkness is supposed to be the same love that we were to actually love God with? Jesus says, hey, do you know how men love darkness? That same love is actually supposed to be turned and you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That this is an aggressive, unconditional, unmerited. It doesn't matter actually what happens to you. Hey, you are out on this thing. I mean, you're just aggressive in this area. You're just, I mean, you are pursuing this thing relentlessly. That is how I'm to love my God. This is not a, well, well can I put a foot in the world and a foot in Jesus? No. That's actually not an option in Scripture. That I am to be aggressive in my pursuit with Jesus. I am to be singular and focused in my pursuit with Jesus. That I am not to allow any other affection to come into my heart outside of Jesus. And the moment anything outside of Jesus becomes center in my life, do you know what that's called? Idolatry. If it was in a relationship, it's called adultery. Isn't it interesting how many times throughout Scripture this idea of return, repent, comes into play? 
Do you know why Moses had to remind them in Deuteronomy 6, even before they entered into the promised land, to have their affections in one place? Because Moses knew the moment they entered into the land, their affections are going to be drawn away. It's really easy in the wilderness to stay focused on God because there is nothing, there's nothing else. I mean, you're desperate. You're in the middle of a desert. I mean, he's the one who has to provide the manna. He's the one who has to provide the quail. He's the one that has to provide the water from the rock. It's really easy to stay focused on God when there is nothing but God. But hey, the moment you get into the line of promise, you can relax. I mean, rivers of milk and honey, which is not what that means, by the way. But hey, just imagine, oh, milk and honey. I mean, you've, you've got water. You've got all this grassland. I mean, it's still the Middle East, so don't think Bahamas, right? But, but hey, it, it's a little bit more pampered. Isn't it interesting the moment we get lost in the culture, the moment the, that the Israelites go into the land that are full of all their enemies and all the paganism and all that junk, how easily their hearts were enticed away from God. And so even before they enter in, it's like Moses is saying, hey, let me remind you, you are to have one focus and one passion and one drive and and one intensity, and that is to be for God and God alone. You're going into a place that has all these distractions. You're going into this place that has all this wooing, and you're going to be tempted to go after their gods. And of course, we in 21st century look at that whole thing and go, that is the dumbest thing. Hello? He just, you just went through the Red Sea 40 years ago. You're about to go through the Jordan River. I mean, quail in the bush, manna down, manna, you know, the dew of manna. I mean, water from a rock, shoes don't wear out, which drove all the women crazy. I mean, you just, you know, I mean, clothes, you didn't have to replace your clothes. You didn't have to, I mean, God has all these incredible miracles. How on earth could we forget God? And yet it was only one generation in the land of promise. And they were throwing God out and putting up all the pagan stuff. Do you know how easy it is to be enticed by culture? Do you know how easy it is to be enticed by the world? Do you know how easy it is to be enticed by the things around? And we look back on these guys and we're like, come on, buddy. Seriously? And yet we live this way. We, we know that we are in the world, but not to be of the world. But maybe a better way of saying that is we are to be in the world, but the world is not to be in us. That we are, we are called to be saints. We're called to be separate. We're called to be holy. We're called to be different and other than the world around us. So that when the world looks upon you, they don't go, oh, you're one of us. They go, you're not one of us. Hey, the reason the early church was exploding is because they were so easily identifiable that they were not of the world And yet they lived so differently. They had something that the world wanted, and yet they didn't want. And so they either had to buy in and become Christians, or they had to silence the voice, which is why there was severe persecution, and yet the church exploded in growth. See, what if our lives were like that? But you realize the only way our lives could ever be like that is we can't have those stuff for the world in us. We honestly have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, When you look at the prophets, it's interesting. You get to the prophets, and uh, 
I was, I was looking at one scholar and he said that of the prophets, <clears throat> that when you look at their overarching message, if you want to say it this way, there, there's two aspects to every major prophet, right? There is the foretelling, which is the stuff you say beforehand. Today for lunch, you get pizza. I, this, don't, don't. Don't stone me because I don't think that's what's going to happen. This is, not real, this is not a real prophecy. Just for, let me clarify. You're going to get pizza and ice cream. It's going to be gluten and dairy free and yet it's actually going to taste good. Okay? For all you people who don't like that persuasion. Oh, the normal stuff, right? The stuff that actually tastes good. <clears throat> right? So there's a foretelling. Usually, usually there's that aspect in the, in the prophecies. And then there's a fourth telling, which is the content itself. It's interesting when you look at the prophecy stuff <clears throat> that only 2% of the prophecies of the prophets specifically related to messianic prophecies. In other words, they're speaking specifically of the Messiah. Now, there's some of this other stuff that has layers to it and could be speaking about Jesus, but 2% of their message was specific about Jesus. 1% was about end times kind of stuff. It's the es eschatology kind of things. 90% of their message was the current day situation stuff. So Jeremiah stands up and says, Nebuchadnezzar's at the door, Babylon is going to take us, Jerusalem's going to fall, temple's going to be destroyed. Right? It's, it's the modern day, that kind of stuff that the prophets were proclaiming. The other 7%, I have no idea, they didn't mention what those were. <laughs> so Miscellaneous? I, I, don't, I don't know. But one of the key, that, that's the foretelling side of things. But the foretelling, the content it's interesting when you look at what a lot of the message was that they were actually proclaiming. Do you know that one of the major messages of the prophets and every single prophet, prophet was repent. 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 Why? Because our affections have been drawn away. And so the prophets are looking at the people of God saying, look, you've got to repent. Hey, you've got to turn. Hey, come back to God. Come back to God. Come back to God. Let me just give you a couple of them. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return! It's that word, repent. Now every one of you from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. That word return or the word repent in the Hebrew is the word shuv, and it shows up over a thousand times in the Old Testament. This isn't just a casual, you know, once in a while, you should consider repenting. Hey, once in a while, you should, hey, you should come back to God. This is a repent, 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 return, return kind of thing. Uh, Hosea 14.1. Oh, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Joel chapter 2, verse 13. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. God is gracious and merciful. He wants you to return. He's not just, you don't sin and he zaps you. Praise the Lord. That's good news. I don't know if you heard that, but that's, that's really good news. Because none of us would be here. That his patience the New Testament says, leads us to repentance. That he is gracious and kind and slow 
to bring forth judgment. Why? Because he wants repentance. That's phenomenal news. So rend not, rend not your garments, but rend your heart. That whole, you know, it's like you see this uh, in, in the Jesus' declaring, I am God in front of the high priest, right? He's, he's on trial. And the priest rips his garment. He rips it in half. It's, it's a sign of no kind of thing. God says, leave your clothes alone. If you're going to rip something, hey, tear your heart and return to me. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Return, repent, and turn from your, all your transgressions so that your iniquity or sin will not be your ruin. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Do you realize that God has no delight in judgment? What does he delight in? Oh, when the wicked repent from his ways and finds life. Which is why when you come to Luke 15 and you have these things that have been lost, been found, there is a celebration. Jesus says, you know what happens when one sinner comes to God? Woo, all of heaven has a party. And you know they're having Diet 7-Up. Can't have a party without Diet 7-Up. I mean, hey, they, they, I mean, they're putting on the party hats. They're, they're bringing out the kazoos. I mean, they're having a legitimate party. And there has to be cake. I'm sure it's fine with the gluten-free people. It's heaven. Right? <laughs> and surely there's ice cream. Because you can't have cake without the ice cream. And obviously there's no calories. I can't prove that biblically, but I'm just presuming... <laughs> Do you realize that there is a celebration? Why? Because God does not delight in judgment. He delights in when someone repents and finds life. And then he says, so let, me, let, me, let me read 33 verse 11 again. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked return, repent from his way and live. Repent, repent from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And he uses that word three times just in that passage. Return, 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 repent, repent, repent. Do you know what God's heart is? For you not to look like everyone else around you. Do you know what God's heart is? It's so that you would come and have intimacy and oneness with him. Do you know what God's heart is? It's not that you would get drowned out in all the distractions of the world, but that you would be distracted only by him that you would have one obsession upon your heart. You'd have one focus upon your mind. You would have one just beating passion in your chest. What is that? Jesus. And we are not to love the things of the world. That we are going to love something. It seems like in Scripture. Either we are going to love the things of the world and all of our affections and all of our attention is going to be in the things of the world or we are going to find our affections and our obsession in Jesus. In other words, you were made to be obsessed. And if you're not obsessed with Jesus, something will fill it. And here's the scary part to me. Anytime I put anything in my life that's not Jesus as my obsession, that's idolatry. Which is just like a married couple committing adultery with each other. 
that, that this guy looks at this gal and says, oh, I love you a lot, but I have this other affection. I have this other side obsession. And don't worry, I'll, I only do it once a month. But I, I just run down and I spend time with. And you're like, it's only once a month. That's not, not, surely that's not a big deal. But hey, if you're a married couple, that, that's life and death kind of stuff. How much more when we're talking about the eternities with God? And one of the things, and I, if I, this is just me, but one of the things I've been noticing is that in our modern culture, in our modern church, it is so easy to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But then I have all these entanglements with the culture. I mentioned this the other day, but the, the average cell phone person, an average person who owns a cell phone, touches their cell phone 2,600 times a day. Now, you could say maybe that's legitimate. Maybe so. <laughs> that's a lot. Well, how, how often do we think about Jesus? Well, I spend 15 minutes in the morning. I pray and I read my Bible and then I lock him in the prayer closet and I go about my day. And then I touch my phone 2,600 times. Don't you see a problem with that? That the average American watches eight, I, I shouldn't do that way. The average American watches 40 hours of television a week, which is a full-time job, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just binging on, on all the entertainment stuff. And I'm not against entertainment. I love Little House on the Prairie. I really enjoyed Finding Nemo. I mean, it's just, I'm not against entertainment, you know? Love Lion King. I mean, I just, I, I enjoy a good movie. So I'm not against, so please hear my heart. I'm not just, ooh, those wicked movies. It's, but you, do you begin to recognize that as a culture, even in the church, what we have done is we said, oh, I'm exhausted, so what do I need to do? I need to turn toward the thing that satisfies me. So what do you turn to? Well, most of us, it's, oh, video games, or it's TV, or it's a movie, or it's a book, or it's people, or it's, and for very few of us, it's actually Jesus, which tells us what? We have some idolatry in our hearts. Now, I'm not saying throw out every friendship. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying never speak to another person. Extroverts, it's okay. You can speak to people. Introverts, please speak to somebody. Okay? <laughs> I'm not saying don't ever, watch, don't ever watch anything. That's not what I'm saying. But you realize that when all this stuff becomes my first turn, and it's not Jesus, that means I've actually put something in place of Jesus, which is called idolatry. So what do we need to do? I don't know about you, but I need to repent. And if you want a good question for your soul is, are you genuinely loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Not just, you know, do I go to church on Sundays and tip my hat to Jesus and then once in a while I'll go to Wednesday night prayer meeting, but, but am I genuinely all for Jesus? 
My guess is if we're all being honest, all of us would have to admit, I don't think I've been all. That there's surely something that I need to give up. And maybe not give up, like remove completely. Maybe that's true. Obviously, if it's sin stuff, it has to go. But you realize sin is not about good and bad. Because sin's bigger than that. Because you can do all the right things, still die and go to hell. So obviously it's not doing all the right things. And sin is bigger than just do's and don'ts. Sin is heart stuff. Because I can do the right thing in the wrong motive and that's still sin. I can preach selfishly. That's called sin for me. Even if God uses it in your life. I can pray to be noticed. That's called pride, which is sin. Isn't that miserable? Well, I thought prayer is good. It is good. But if you're praying so you could be seen, that's called sin. So guess what you need to do? Repent. So again, sin is not do's and don'ts. Sin is not right and wrong. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's bigger than that. It's heart stuff. So would you let God go after your heart? And I don't know what it is that you may need to repent of, but can I just encourage us to repent? Because what our world needs more than ever before is revival. Things are getting dark. And light has come into this world. In fact, you, Jesus said, are now the light of this world. That because he now fills your life, you're now the beacon of Jesus in this world. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have any area of my life that's hidden by a bushel. I don't want, I don't want anything in my life to be hidden or dampered because of the sin and the distraction and the whatever in my life. I want my life to be a bright light. I'm not the light, for clarity's sake. I'm merely the lampstand upon which the light sits. But I don't want to obscure the light. And if revival's ever going to come back to this world, I honestly think it has to start in the church. Where we say, Jesus, I'm all in. So I'm willing to repent. Pray with me, Jesus. Lord, I don't know how it looks practically to fully be in the world, but not allow the world to be in me. Because this is not about going to a little monastery and secluding myself from the world and hiding away and and being quote-unquote spiritual. But Lord, I don't want any of my affections. I don't want any of my obsessions. I don't want any of my passions of my life to be something other than you. Lord, we recognize it's not removing what we think is quote-unquote worldly stuff. It's, It's you so filling up our hearts and our minds and our lives that there just isn't room for junk anymore. 
So Lord, I just want to, I just want to repent. Lord, I want to repent to the times that I've turned to something for refreshment other than you. That Lord, when I'm trying to escape craziness in life, I turn to this rather than you. Lord, could you somehow capture my mind, capture my heart, capture my time, capture my energy, capture my affections, capture my passion, capture my, the obsession of my life, that there's only one way to describe my life, and it's you. Lord, you are faithful, but Lord, I still ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, would you come and search every aspect of my life and see if there's any wicked way within me. See if there's anything that's been drawn, enticed, influenced by the world. Lord, if over a thousand times you were yelling at your people, repent, 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 not yelling out of anger, but yelling out of a heart of love, saying, please, repent. That you do not delight in the judgment. You delight when, when your people repent. So Lord, will you yell that in my life as well? Not out of anger, we understand that's not your heart. But out of a deep, passionate love for relationship, would you search and try every thought, every attitude, every motive, every action, every word? And Lord, know my answer is yes. Because I want relationship. I want intimacy. I want to be obsessed. I genuinely want to love the Lord my God with all. And Lord, would you awaken your church? Would you awaken your bride? And Lord, though your, your bride has gone off and prostituted herself with this world, Lord, out of love, would you call your church, your bride back and say, repent, repent. That the very last word that you gave to your bride in the book of Revelation would be the same word that you're giving to the church today, repent. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to do so. That we would once again look, act, talk, think like the bride of Christ. A pure and spotless bride. And Lord, I pray that as a church that the world would behold you afresh and would see you and desire you because they see you as a burning, blazing light coming forth from the church, from our lives. Love you, Jesus. Thank you, not, thank you that you've not just left us on our own. Thank you you've not just judged us in the moment of rebellion, but that your patience should lead us to repentance. We want you, Jesus. We love you. Give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen.
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.